Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bardflies, a podcast about why you shouldn't react too strongly when you don't get elected to student government. This week, a story of pride, maternal ambition, and the earliest, most spectacular rage quit in literature with Coriolanus. I'm James Smith. And I'm Will Quinn. This is episode 34, The Pride Before the Brawl. He that will give good words to thee will flatter beneath abhorring. What would you have, you curs, that like nor peace nor war, the one affrights you, the other makes you proud? He that trusts to you where he should find you lions, finds you hares, where foxes, geese. Who deserves greatness? Deserves your hate? Will, would you please be so kind as to give us a plot summary of Coriolanus? Happily, James. Happily. Our play opens in Rome, where the plebeians are rioting in the streets out of hunger and desperation. Caius Martius, a Roman general and patrician of good standing, holds the line in front of the grain stores, which have been reserved for those who have fought on behalf of Rome in the recent wars against the Tarquinian kings. As the crowd moves towards the granary, they are greeted by the affable patrician politician Meninius. He prefers to try and reason with the mob, as opposed to Caius Martius, who holds the people in contempt for their perceived cowardice against Rome's enemies. This scene prompts a dialogue between Sicinius and Brutus, two tribunes of the people, who denounce Caius Martius for his arrogance and pride and decide that he needs to go. But before they can set any plots in motion, another crisis breaks out. Word arrives in Rome that the Volscian tribe, led by Tullus Aphidius, a general who has repeatedly clashed with Rome and Caius Martius in particular over the years, is now leading an army against Rome's outer provinces. Rome's leaders dispatch an army of their own to repel the invaders, led by Cominius and Martius. Martius's wife, Virgilia, his son, and mother, Volumnia, see him off, with his mother bragging about her son's martial prowess, seemingly more concerned with his ability to earn honor on the battlefield than the risk that he might die in the process. The Roman army divides in half, with Cominius fighting the Volscians in the field, while Martius lays siege to the Volscian city of Coriolis. Martius's men are initially repulsed from the city gates, but Martius, raging against the Volscians, charges through the gates alone and slaughters his enemies with smoking steel. Inspired by his courageous example, the Roman troops rally behind him and take the city. Martius, covered in blood and exhausted, gathers his men together and brings them into the field where Cominius and Tullus Aphidius have clashed. He seeks out Aphidius and nearly kills him in single combat, only to be foiled when the Volscians pull back their enraged general from his bitter rival. Upon returning to Rome, Martius is honored with the name of the city he conquered, Coriolanus. Amid the celebrations, he reunites with his family, including Volumnia, who urges a reluctant and reticent Coriolanus to stand for consul. Meninius backs him, garnering unanimous support from the Senate and preparing him to submit himself to the plebeians for their approval. This involves a ritual ceremony in which Coriolanus must wear a simple toga and show his scars and wounds from the campaigns and wars over the years to the crowd. Coriolanus explains to his mother and to Meninius his great reluctance to go through with this, claiming that his wounds are deeply personal and that he does not wish to share them with undeserving people who don't understand his sacrifice, and he tries to avoid doing so. In his first encounter with a succession of commoners, he struggles to conceal his disdain for them but appears to win their favor. He never has to reveal his wounds to them underneath his toga, and engages in a degree of verbal jousting that is just shy of revealing his contempt for the common man. However, Sicinius and Brutus appear and convince the common people, once Coriolanus is left, that in fact the general disdains them and seeks to usurp their rights. The people start another riot, led by Sicinius and Brutus which Meninius tries to quell by offering Coriolanus a chance to show his scars to them once more and adopt a humbler, more mild tone. Even Volumnia urges him to do so, and Coriolanus seemingly agrees to this advice. 
However, during his second public encounter with the people, the tribunes provoke Coriolanus by claiming that the great war hero is actually a traitor to Rome and leading the mob to condemn him to banishment, prompting an explosive outburst from Coriolanus in which he decries the plebeians as curs who pollute his air, merely unworthy crows who peck at eagles, and claims that there is a world elsewhere before dramatically striding off stage. After being seen off by his friends and family, Coriolanus travels incognito to the Volscian city of Antium, where he submits himself to Aphidius, either to be murdered or to join their cause. Ultimately, Aphidius accepts him. He volunteers to join the army and help lead the sack of Rome in revenge for his exile. Despite their long-standing enmity, Aphidius seemingly accepts him with a great degree of ease, calm, and magnanimity, recognizing Coriolanus's valor and martial skill. Their campaign is wildly successful, sparking panic and recrimination in Rome, where Meninius rails against the calumny of the feckless tribunes. It also leads to unease in some quarters of the Volscian army, where Coriolanus is now more popular than Aphidius. Nonetheless, when the Volscians arrive outside of Rome, Cominius, Meninius, and Coriolanus's family all try to persuade him to make peace. He rejects Cominius and Meninius outright, and is only stayed by Volumnia, Virgilia, his wife, and his son, Martius. Volumnia convinces him that the honorable path would be to make peace between the two parties, rather than destroying Rome or turning on his new allies. He does so and heads back into honorable exile, returning to Antium to present the generous terms of peace that he has negotiated on behalf of the Volscians. He is met by an angry Aphidius, who has conspired in Coriolanus's absence to kill him. A crowd rails against Coriolanus for murdering so many Volscians during his earlier campaigns, while the Volscian nobles plea for calm. Aphidius strikes Coriolanus down, but then, overcome with sorrow at the death of an honorable man, prepares his body for a military burial with full honors. Pretty intense, Will. Thank you. Thank you again. Uh, yet another, yet another fabulous plot summary. You would think that after... 20 plus plays of this I'd be used to it but every time Will I'm wowed by your uh, your articulation your diction and uh, your excellent summaries so thank you well it's my pleasure James as always so there's a lot to get into here and I think particularly there's a lot to get into in the political context and the social context of this play and I think a lot of these different issues are, are going to come up. But I, I wanted to start by talking a little bit about the relationship between specifically Coriolanus, but also the Roman patrician class as a whole to the Roman plebeians and the Roman working class. You know, I recently, you do, do not ask me why I did this, but I recently read, Will, Marx's critique of Hegel's doctrine of the state, which is an early... Marx text. And within this text, Marx makes the claim that there is no separation between the government and the people. The people are the government, or the people are the democracy, right? There, there's no such thing as a government laid on top of society. And in fact, here, you see a line from Sicinius, who is speaking in one of these early moments where he's trying to kind of rile people up against Coriolanus or Martius, I guess, at that time. And Sicinius says, what is the city but the people? Mm. And the citizens reply, true, the people are the city. And so, look, obviously, we don't need to get into a deep Marxist tangent in this podcast. But I was struck by that parallel because I do find that this play is probably the frankest Shakespearean engagement with specifically class-based conflict. Mm. You know, we saw, obviously, in Henry VI Part Two, there's the Jack Cade Rebellion, which has its own communistic kind of overtones in the way that Cade and the commoners are speaking. And I think we have a few other points, maybe, where we see some of this co conflict, but usually it's more kind of economically based, you know, in, like, Merchant of Venice types. It's all about the corrupting power of money. This play is very much about that kind of direct social conflict. So 
I just wanted to lead off with that topic and just ask you, what do you make about the way this play is dealing with class conflict and also, by extension, how it's dealing with democracy and electioneering in that context? Yeah, so great question, James. I think there's three things going on here. So first is the class conflict issues which you suggested. The second is the question over democracy versus autocracy and maybe aristocracy somewhere in the middle. So the form of government that is in Rome. And then the third piece that I see there, which is maybe related to the second, is the praetorian military mentality of Coriolanus versus the sort of civilians in the play and his view of himself as above politics and superior to the people that haven't actually served in some capacity. And um, I think what I'd say first off, just as a, a note on this one, and I won't belabor the point, I mean, this play really is a Rorschach test if you look at the history of how it was staged over time. The Nazis liked this play, so did some of the French fascists I found out in my reading because they loved the all-out assault on the tribunes as heralds of democracy. But similarly, communists in Russia and Bertolt Brecht in Germany staged this, and you can also depict Coriolanus as an out-and-out megalomaniacal dictator, right? So there's a Rorschach test for political extremists in this play, I think, that you can you can easily embrace. But those are some of the issues that I think are in play. I don't know. I, I suppose the thing that strikes me on the class angle in particular is you have the people who are presented not maybe in the most favorable light, and they're contrasted with the elite, which, you know... But I would the, argue also the elite are not really presented in yeah. a necessarily favorable light either. Yes, you know, yes. And, and I, I feel like we uh, we made the same observation, Will, when we talked about the Jack Cade stuff in Henry VI too. Obviously a somewhat different circumstance because of the, uh, as, as you described it, because of the like sort of cat's paw thing there. But in that context too, right? We talked a lot about how the nobles were all self-interested and corrupt, but similarly, the people weren't much better, if they were better at all, right? So I, I don't know that it's new. I mean, it, it reflects a similar set of concerns, I think. I think in some ways, this is even more frank in some ways about it. I think that when we're talking about Jack Cade's rebellion, I mean, it's sort of a mobocracy led by a, a sort of false flag attack. And I think that you're not meant to love the idea of total unbridled chaos of letting the people rule themselves. In here, you see the people are just extremely easily led. And you saw it mm -hmm. in Julius Caesar, too. In Julius Caesar, it's sort of clever rhetoric. In here, you have the two tribunes, Sicinius and Brutus, that are performing a sort of similar function, where it's also clear that they are out for their own interests as well. I mean, they may sincerely believe that Coriolanus is a would-be dictator, and there's some evidence for that, but there's also plenty of evidence that they're willing to kind of twist the citizens' views back around against Coriolanus, because they're willing to um, accept him initially when he first goes to meet with them, meaning the, the commoners, the citizens, and they poison the people against him once more. So there's a lot going on here, both in terms of just the class dynamics as blocks of people, but there are also individuals that sort of embody yeah. and manipulate these different groups in ways that are maybe not <laughs> not totally healthy or good for the body politic. And actually, I'd include, and we can we can talk about him, but I, I find Menenius to be such an interesting character in this way because he's very perceptive about how the different parts of the society, Roman society, relate to one another. But he's also pushing this job on Coriolanus when Coriolanus is clearly not temperamentally suited to yeah, there's, lead. <laughs> there's an interesting divide here. And I, I agree. I, I do want to talk about Menenius. I, I, I did want to say I find the Julius Caesar comparison to be interesting because in Julius Caesar, I mean, I just think that there's an interesting divide to look at here because in Julius Caesar, what you have is two different factions and they're really competing for the support of the common people. Whereas in this play, it's more... I mean, I guess you could make the argument that the tribunes are similarly 
factional, but I think here it's more explicitly divided by class, right? The mm -hmm. tribunes are the representatives of the people, of the common people, I should say, of the plebeians. Right. And, and so the dividing lines end up being much more explicitly class rather than about being who's going to be able to marshal popular support, if that makes sense. Right. I mean, the play does begin with grain riots, and as anybody that's uh, studied the history of revolutions or is just passingly familiar, usually grain riots, um, that's, I think, the one common denominator of pretty much all of them in some fashion, right? Uh, so I think that it's leading off in a very forward way where there is discontent yeah. in Rome, independent of the vicissitudes of public opinion and maybe the, the fickleness of the crowd, there are genuine interests that are being contested here. Right. So. To your point about Menenius, Will, this I think is a very interesting and worthwhile point because on the one hand, I think we see that Menenius is a true pragmatist. I find actually that Menenius, if I'm thinking about the scope and the sweep of Shakespeare, or at least of the plays that we've read, you know, I find Menenius to be really the most eloquent, and I don't mean eloquent in terms of soaring rhetoric, because I don't think that Menenius really does offer any soaring rhetoric, but most eloquent in terms of like the most well thought out and well articulated argument for aristocracy as a political system. Mm. You know, he makes these arguments about how for the patricians and the plebeians to fight is really counterproductive for both. And he usually that's expressed in terms of his talking to the plebeians, trying to talk them down, right? Where he says, you know, he's talking about Rome as the body politic, and he's, he sort of gives this parable about how the other parts of the body get angry at the belly because the belly's hoarding all the food, and then says, The senator of Rome are this good belly, and you, the mutinous members, for examine their counsels and their cares, digest things rightly touching the wheel of the common, and you shall find no public benefit which you re receive, but it proceeds or comes from them to you, and no way from yourselves. So he's articulating this idea that, yeah, maybe there's some inequality, or maybe there's even a lot of inequality, but at the end of the day, it's all working together and it's really in everyone's best interests to be at peace and for the benefits of prosperity to flow from the senatorial class down to the commoners, right? Mm -hmm. So he's articulating this very pragmatic idea about aristocracy and that as a governing paradigm. And yet you're right, like his selection of Coriolanus seems to be somewhat impractical in that, or unpragmatic in that Coriolanus is seemingly pretty clearly not fit to be like he's a great general he's a great soldier he's a great warrior but he doesn't seem very fit to be a consul a political figure and i wonder if that's menenius's pragmatism getting ahead of him because he recognizes a sellable democratic narrative you know and i, I think this is maybe an opportunity well i mean you know a lot about the military and democracy and maybe this is something you can speak to definitely much better than i can but it seems like maybe Menenius is seeing that Coriolanus is a war hero and that plays well in a democratic electioneering sort of perspective. And maybe that's going to advance the causes that Menenius wants electorally, politically, even if maybe Coriolanus himself is not the best avatar for that. Yeah, it's a long tradition, right, of seeking the man on horseback in one fashion or another to lead the state. And assuming that the virtues of a general that's very successful in war will obviously translate to civil government. And there's plenty of examples of how that goes awry without even verging on the whole question of military dictatorship. But throughout even just recent American history, you know, the past 60 or 70 years, you occasionally see people that have military experience or are four-star generals brooded about as potential presidents, you know, whether it's MacArthur, you know, Eisenhower, you can sort of go down through the list all the way up to relatively recent discussions. And I think that there's this, from an electioneering perspective, it's seen as who could really be against the savior of Rome, right? and sort of the liberator of these cities. 
And there's the sense of the military being a unifying and apolitical institution in some sense can be very politically appealing. Unfortunately, that is not really the case in Rome. And we get that right at the beginning when all of the grain is being preserved for people that have fought in the army and presumably for the patricians against the plebeians that did not fight in the Roman army. So you already have some divides that are sort of being placed there that are quite interesting. And there's this mentality that Coriolanus possesses that you sort of see over the course of this ritual gathering where he's supposed to show his wounds publicly that reveals that there are some problems with uh, Menenius's view and plan here to actually make things work out and come together. Setting aside even the fact that Coriolanus is not enthusiastic about standing for office at all. Yeah, I mean, there's... We'll get into who's pushing Coriolanus to stand for consul in a minute, I think. I guess the question here is, or a question here, I should say, is... I mean, obviously we can, you know, we can cite examples where the military figure does become a successful political figure. And you've talked in the past, I think, about the military being very respected, right? Particularly respected for being apolitical or for being... I I just remember once we were talking about it and you mentioned how the military was the most respected institution or like the only institution that we have currently that sort of maintains its prestige for for whatever reason, perhaps because it's viewed as being apolitical. I suppose my question on this is Coriolanus doesn't really want to become consul. He definitely doesn't want to go through the rigmarole that it requires to get the people to sign on to his becoming consul. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wonder, what is the utility of the electioneering, right? Like, you know, there's this whole thing about how... Sorry, I'm, I'm not articulating this well at all. What I'm trying to get at is the, the kind of psychological divide between committing to going in electioneering and going and winning the votes of the common people mm-hmm. and... Coriolanus is almost philosoph- I mean not, not not almost like seemingly like deeply held like philosophical objection to going and doing that electioneering which involves exposing his scars right that you talked about in the plot summary. So I'm you know it feels like Coriolanus feels like there's something almost immoral about using his war experience in this way. Yes, yes. And it's clearly something that's deeply felt by him. I mean, he has that wonderful line where he says, Lest I surcease to honor mine own truth, and by my body's action teach my mind a most inherent baseness. He views this as just so repugnant personally to his sense of honor. And I think part of that is he doesn't want to be judged by people he views as unworthy, and he doesn't want to share his sense of vulnerability with Mm -hmm. them. Yep. Which is what I think the purpose of this ritual is. But, it, it, you know, to, to put it all in context, right, the process here seems to be gets nominated, the Senate approves him, and then he has to go and reveal himself as basically a man mm-hmm. to the people, right? I think maybe the reason you could argue, maybe the reason that that's important for him to do is to sort of establish that, you know, the people have some say in this process, They don't dictate the process. You know, they're not necessarily selecting the people that get nominated and go through the Senate first, but they do have an opportunity to engage and encounter and sort of affirm whoever is sort of up for this. And in that sense, there's a limited range of acceptability here that it has to be both acceptable to the patricians and to the plebeians. And it's also a chance to sort of see temperamentally what these people are made of. And you can say in one sense... Well, the process obviously fails because Coriolanus goes off and joins the Volscians and then wages war against them. But it also succeeds in the sense that um, Coriolanus reveals his faults through the process as well. I mean, after a little bit of manipulation by Sicinius and Brutus. So I I think the the function, it's clear what purpose it's supposed to serve. It's supposed to get buy-in from each element of society and to sort of test people to see whether they're 
Um, they have what perhaps. it takes, whether they're fit for office. And I think, you know, there's plenty of problems with the way Democratic political campaigns work. And, you know, that can be dissected endlessly. But the rigors of a campaign are meant to reveal the different sides of a person under stress to different audiences. And uh, that is something that Coriolanus has no real interest in pursuing personally. He just wants to be asked and wants to do the job. Maybe not even well, that. Well, he doesn't even really want to do the job, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that, this is what where the political conversation maybe breaks down a little bit is that Coriolanus doesn't really have ambition. In his disdain for the democratic process, not even for the democratic process, but in his disdain for the electioneering and for the idea of becoming consul, he's like Hotspur, right? This was a comparison that jumped out Mm -hmm. to me. And obviously Hotspur and Coriolanus come from very different contexts, and therefore I think that the way this manifests is very different. But they are the two characters that we've read in Shakespeare who really take this idea of military virtue and martial virtue to an extreme. And it seems like Coriolanus really, I mean, you tell me if you don't agree. I don't find in Coriolanus great ambition for honors outside of the honor of the battlefield, right? The honor of being recognized by other soldiers, by other people who have the same virtues, right? And that's why his reaction to Alphidius is much warmer in a way than his reaction to any of the other Romans. He sees Aphidius as essentially an equal and a worthy adversary. I mean, they've clashed, you know, half a dozen times by the accounts of the other characters, if not more. And um, they make common cause, right, against their shared enemy. What I think is striking, I think it's a really good comparison. I mean, Hotspur, obviously, in that sort of medieval English context, I think that the way honor maybe manifests itself is a little Mm -hmm. bit more deeply personal, in a sense. I mean, Coriolanus is concerned with the honor of his person, but it all comes in the service of this abstract ideal of duty and performing one's duty well on the Mm -hmm. battlefield. But it's a very abstract... It's duty to an abstract vision of Rome, not Rome as it necessarily actually exists. And that's the tension. You brought up the Tribune's comment of what is the city if not the people? The people are the city. That's very much at variance with Coriolanus's sense of, well, the city is eternal and has very little to do with the people that actually live there. Live there right and, now. And live there yeah. right now. I mean, the, the truth is, right, it, it has to be, if you have a, like a sophisticated vision of society, it should probably not be 100% in one extreme or the other. If you take that attitude, you know, you're either going to fritter away the patrimony of the people, or you're just going to ignore the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, politics is about serving the common wheel in some sense, right? It's not, you can debate about how you actually pursue that. But I think Coriolanus is the type of guy who, and this he shares with Hotspur, they have sort of an idea of honor and in Hotspur's case, glory, that they're willing to like sacrifice a lot of people for, because people, unless they're pursuing this type of end themselves, are kind of less than in some way, right? Like they're not really... um... So, Will, let me make an argument to you and just tell me how you feel about this. Because I think, I actually find the Hotspur-Coriolanus comparison to be very revealing for the ultimate conclusion of this play. Where it feels like, to me, that right Hotspur in the end gets the death that he desired. And frankly, the death that he desired was the only thing that he truly ever desired, right? To die mm-hmm. gloriously in battle. He gets that. And part of what's going on in Henry IV Part One is you have this Hotspur-Falstaff divide, and you have Hal in the middle who's sort of learning from both these paradigms, and both Hotspur and Falstaff basically get what they want, where Hotspur dies gloriously in battle, and Falstaff pops up and says, give me life, and goes on to party some more until Hal rejects him in Part Two, right? <laughs> But Hotspur gets his glorious death because he really does follow the logic of his position down to the end. Whereas Coriolanus, what happens in this play, and the reason that it ends up being the tragedy of Coriolanus, is that in the end, you know, he gives up his sense of martial virtue. He gives up this military ideal when he's 
directly pleaded by Volumnia and Virgilia and his son, mm-hmm. right? And then he goes back to Volsha. Is it Volsha? No, to Actium. Uh, Antium. 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 You, you know, and instead he goes back to Antium. And, you know, when you're in this role of being the military hero, the person embodying this idea of military virtue, and particularly in this context where he's turned his coat and gone over to the other side, then your honor and your position are completely contingent on victory. And so in the end, I think Cori- like the tragedy of Coriolanus is that he, he doesn't follow through to the end. He doesn't go and burn Rome to the ground or conquer Rome for the Volscians. He turns around and goes back and negotiates peace, which is outside of the discourse of mm. his position. And that creates the dynamic whereby it's okay for Ophidius to kill him. And I will say also, Will, like, I don't think we have time to get into this, but I do want to note that I feel like it's clear that Alphidius is not quite as talented a general as Coriolanus, as yes. much as he embodies much of the same ideals, but he's a much wilier and better politician. Yes, definitely. And that, I think, is also a very interesting divide in this play. But anyway, regardless, I do find that that Hotspur, the conclusion of Hotspur's arc, throws a little bit of clarity and light on why Coriolanus has to have this tragic end, right? Because he doesn't see it through to the end. Yeah, well, it's... I think that there's a lot of good insight there. It's a complex ending in one sense that I think I would I'd maybe differ or sort of offer a slightly different analysis of it. When Volumnia goes and entreats him to spare Rome, she's very concerned. The way she gets through to him is to appeal to his honor in a different way, which is you don't have to betray the Volscians and turn on them. You can conduct these negotiations and sort of find a way out of this. And mercy can be its own form of honor. She basically offers an honorable way for him out, and he takes it. And of course, when he goes back, he's he's rejected, understandably, by Ophidius and the Volscians, uh, or at least the Volscian people and the conspirators who kill him. Well, this is, I think I have the, the bit you're thinking of. She says, Thou knowst, great son, the end of war is uncertain. But this, certain, that if thou conquer Rome, the benefit which thou shalt thereby reap is such a name whose repetition will be dogged with curses, whose chronicle thus writ, the man was noble, but with his last attempt he wiped it out, destroyed his country, and his name remains to the ensuing age of Horde. I mean, in that passage, I think she is able to break through to him that there are loyalties both to sort of the eternal Rome and to Rome as it maybe actually exists as well, that he should also try to uphold. I think one of the contradictions or challenges of Coriolanus's character is, you know, you can sort of treat him as this pure archetype who ultimately contradicts himself by granting mercy to Rome. But in some ways, the whole reason he has his meltdown is he wants to honor his own truth, right? He mm-hmm. wants to honor this vision of himself as above judgment from others that have not walked in his shoes. Well, as long as we're going to hit on this quickly, should we just play the common cry of Kerr's speech, which I feel like is the fullest embodiment of the Coriolanus rage fest? Yes, absolutely amazing speech. <laughs> Reservation of yourselves, still your own foes, deliver you 
as most abated captives to some nation that won you without blows. Despising for you the city thus I turn my back there is a world elsewhere there's something just kind of complex about this because in some ways he's able to step outside of that and maybe take a longer and more uh, magnanimous view towards his own country and towards his rivals. And he's not going to sort of betray them either in his view. He's, he's actually getting them a lot of the things that they wanted. He's getting them their territory back, so mm-hmm. on and so forth. In a weird way, right, I think when he goes back to them, he also gets accused of being a traitor, which obviously leads him into frothing rage, and then they kill him, right? In some ways, Coriolanus has this brief moment of having transcended his own personal rage and anger and the kind of complex he's developed as sort of a praetorian that sits above the people and above their judgment and above conventional politics. He's able to sort of make a compromise that he feels leaves his honor intact. But that's a difficult and very tenuous thing for him, ultimately, right? In some ways, when he leaves in exile, you almost feel that if Hotspur's goal is to die gloriously in battle, Coriolanus, he's happier to just be mad and right, yep. even if he's in exile <laughs> or set apart. And he has this brief triumph of, of kind of a moment of clarity, but it doesn't actually hold when he goes back to people that he expects to honor and uphold their end of, yeah. of an honorable bargain in some ways. The only thing I'd say to complicate that, Will, is that there's no reason that Coriolanus needed to go to Alphidius and place himself at the head of the Volscians to try to destroy Rome, right? And maybe we should talk a little bit about his rage. You know, we talked about the rage quit. Uh, You know, or we we joked about the rage quit in the intro to this episode, but there's no reason that Coriolanus couldn't have just gone into exile, right? And gone to, you know, live on a farm somewhere or, or something. And I guess there's two parts of it, right? There's Coriolanus's rage. There's this immense anger that he has at the wrong that he perceives that has been done to him, which I think it's questionable if, like, a wrong really has been done to him. At least it's questionable if you view the cut and thrust of politics as somewhat mm-hmm. normal, which perhaps he doesn't. I, I mean, I don't know to what degree the tribunes are, like, breaking norms in yeah, quotation yeah. marks. But then also I find there to be the question of, and this might be extra textual, right? But does Coriolanus' view of himself as a great warrior and as someone who embodies, you know, who so values this idea of martial virtue, is he someone who's not really able to exist if he's not at the head of an army? Yeah, yeah. I think that's very fair. And I think that, um, you know, in some ways, right, this man derives almost the entirety of his meaning from being a successful warrior. From age 16, as Volumnia narrates, he's been off fighting and achieving great things and coming back with the oaken laurel of victory around his head each time, and also covered in scars. And I think that the two things are sort of closely related in his mind, that he feels like he's performing this patriotic duty, that he's performing it exceptionally well, and that it sort of puts him above question in some ways from others. Yeah. Will, we've talked a lot about this topic, and I think we've gone some interesting directions here. I do, before we start to wrap up, I want to talk a little bit more specifically about the Coriolanus-Volumnia relationship. Yeah. I feel like in Shakespeare up to this point, we've seen a lot of, somewhat messed up father-son relationships, mostly because we've read a lot of history plays and there's a lot of fathers and sons who are involved in those history plays, usually involved in dynastic struggle. We've had fewer mother-son relationships to talk about, and I think this one is the most directly messed up, shall we say. (laughs) Or or at least the most directly psychodramatically messed up, right? I think the obvious other example of this is 
Gertrude and Hamlet in Hamlet. But in that play, I think that it's more about the situation that is, and it's Hamlet's reaction to the situation. And, and like, I don't know that Gertrude has necessarily been the greatest mother to Hamlet. I, I, I don't, I don't know if I could make an argument one way or another on that, but it feels like a lot of what's going on with Hamlet is Hamlet is messed up about the death of his father. He's upset that his mother has remarried so quickly, and that is setting in motion a lot of his depression and sort of mm-hmm. psychological issues, shall we say. Whereas with Coriolanus and Volumnia, it feels like we're seeing a relationship whereby... You know, to the point that Coriolanus doesn't seem to care that much about becoming consul or about standing for election or about the curses on Orem. We have here a relationship whereby it seems like Volumnia is investing all of her own ambition in Coriolanus and she is pushing Coriolanus to live out her ambition. And weirdly, the death of Coriolanus is itself furthering her ambition, right? Because Volumnia gets to be the one who has saved the city by turning Mm -hmm. Coriolanus back. So I guess I don't have a specific question, but it's, you know, what do you make of this relationship between mother and son in this play? Yeah, so I think maybe the the best thing to do is to just read a couple lines of dialogue here and then riff on them. But Please, okay. go for so, it. So Volumnia's first lines in the play, after she hears that Martius is, is going to march and go out and fight the Volscians, she's talking to her daughter-in-law, mind you, and I'm just going to read two quick lines here. I pray you, daughter, sing, or express yourself in some more comfortable sort. If my son were my husband, I would freely rejoice in the absence that brought him fame than in the embraces of his bed where most he might show love. So, yikes, is what I wrote down in my copy of the play. And then the end of that is... A cruel war I sent him. And he returned his brows bound with oak leaves. I tell thee, daughter, I sprang not more in joy at first hearing he was a man-child than then at first seeing him prove himself a man. So there's a lot going on there. I would just say that this is a battle hymn of the, I don't know what the appropriate analogy would be, but she's a tiger mother to the extreme, Mm -hmm. I would say. She wants her son to achieve. It's just the achievements are only of one sort and involve him risking life and limb to sort of reflect well on her. And it's it's not great in practice. Another line here, you know, she's encouraging him to stand for consul and to show his scars, basically, in that whole sequence. And he, of course, is complaining about it, essentially saying that it's going to work against his integrity, right? Against his idea of himself. Yeah. Volumnia says, if it be honor in your wars to seem the same you are not, which for your best ends you adopt your policy, how is it less or worse that it shall hold companionship in peace with honor as in war, since that to both it stands in like request? Which sounds like word salad when I say it, but basically is her saying, well, you know, like in wartime, you use deception and trickery and strategy to win. So, like, you know, like, why wouldn't you do the same thing in the peace? Like, why wouldn't you go and sacrifice your view of integrity to show that you've earned the right to be consul? She's very directly, I think, pushing him to act against his own instincts and his own sense of self to further her idea. I mean, look, she never says that she wants to be the first woman in Rome, but... Mm -hmm. Well, I would say it's hard not to conclude that she wants to be the first woman in Rome, right? I think it's pretty obvious, yeah. I think what's really ghastly about this in some ways is that she has this very almost glib sense of an attitude towards Coriolanus going off and coming home with scars. And Coriolanus seems like a pretty traumatized individual in various ways. I mean... I think in some ways it's like, look, you can't really diagnose this uh, literary character with post-traumatic stress disorder. I don't even think that 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 may or may not be what's going on here. Mm -hmm. But he's the one that has to carry these scars around. And he is the one that has to deal with these memories and physical painful wounds. It's very easy for her to say, oh, just alter your attitudes and behavior. Don't speak your own truth all the time. Just don't do that. Just, you know, just make an exception. And Coriolanus is clearly a guy who um, will break before he bends in almost all situations throughout the play. And so 
in that sense, she has this very casual way of treating his suffering and what he goes through. And it's not like he's the type of character to go around pleading for sympathy from yeah. people. In fact, yeah. very much the opposite. But he's obviously suffered a great deal and she seems completely oblivious to that to the point of pushing him to do things that are obviously obviously not good for him. Yeah, I mean, you wonder... I find the problem with trying to like dig really into this relationship is that right, we only see what's in the play. And really, Will... With Volumnia and Coriolanus, it's kind of mostly act like the second half of the play. Mm-hmm. I, I think she appears earlier, but most of the first three acts really is taken up with the first war with the Volsians, right? So we don't get that much on the page. What's there is pretty rich. But to really get into this question of like, well, how has Volumnia shaped Coriolanus? Is she the cause of his inflexibility, his pride, what have you? really requires a level of backstory that we don't have, I, I feel. It, it's almost something where, like, it feels like this would be a really interesting relationship to dig into as actors. Yes. You know, as an actor and an actress, to really dig into, like, well, what is the back and forth between these characters? What was, you know, what was Volumnia's relationship with Coriolanus like as a child? What mm-hmm. was his reaction to her? Where does this all come from? Like, it's clear that there's a deep psychological subtext here, but I think we're filling in a lot of that. Like, we can see what the effects are, and the effects are pretty bad, but what exactly has caused what feels a little hidden to me. So to me, I I think you can look at what they're saying and what they choose to focus on and and have some insight here. I mean, you're right. I think that there's clearly deep backstory that would need to be filled in by actors playing the role. I suppose I would play this as Volumnia's expectations and encouragement of her son certainly conditions what he sees as honorable and worthwhile. Mm -hmm. And then what he actually experiences as an individual while doing those things hardens and changes certain aspects of that in a way that's deeply felt and personal and unique to him, but is not shared. And it's interesting that most of his great dialogue happens with his mother and not his wife. You get the sense that it's sort of a dialectic between her expectations, ambitions, and standards as she articulates them, and then his spin on them based on his own personal experiences and life at war. And so I think finding that balance of, it's not nature and nurture, but there's a nurture and then there's a personal experience beyond just the mother-son relationship. Right. And they feed into each other in in ways that warp and, and change the way that they're not really having the same conversation at the end of these dialogues in some ways. I mean, he's bringing this question of honor to a different level because he's talking about his wounds. He's talking about sort of what he's gone through and she is referring to them more as just glorious signs of achievement. And you get the sense that it's not quite just that to him. It's something that's actually painful and deeply held in a way that he doesn't really want to be freely giving to the crowd or anyone else. You know, it's, it's something almost intimate. Well, you know, we, not to be too much of an armchair psychologist, Will, or not to, you know, not to diagnose things that we are not able or not fit to diagnose, but we do seek the things that we are reinforced to seek, right? And just to close the Volumnia conversation on that note, when he's coming back from the first war, Menenia says he was want to come home wounded. (laughs) Volumnia says, oh, he is wounded. I thank the gods for it. Right. I mean, that's messed up. Like, and just... <laughs> I think that pretty much tells you everything you need to know, right? It's, it seems clear that Coriolanus has been reinforced his whole life, not just for achievement and bringing honor to the family, but specifically for a particular kind of bringing honor to the family in a way that is like somewhat dark and definitely hazardous and probably has led him to engage in behavior that 
you know, we might not encourage. Yes, I think that's definitely true. Whether this is more disturbing, perhaps, than the uh, Freudian interpretation of Gertrude and Hamlet, we leave to our dear listeners to decide, but it's definitely one of the more disturbing parent-child and certainly mother-son relationships in Shakespeare. Well, on that note, because I don't want to take up too much of our reader's time worrying about Coriolanus's mommy issues... Let's just talk about how we rank this one. So I feel like this is one you've talked about to me, not on the podcast, but separately before. I know this is one you've engaged a lot with. How do you rank it? What do you think of this in comparison with the rest of the plays? Oh boy, this is a tough one. It's not in the absolute top tier for me, but I definitely think it's a solid upper second tier. So I'm looking at my rankings here. I think it is... Oh man, this is this is tough, James. It's really, really tough. It's like one of those things where I think I would reorient some of this, but I'm not going to take a mea culpa. You can take a mea culpa, Will. I'm not going to take a mea culpa because you I can start move doing King that, John to number one whenever no, you want. It, that's all right. You can move Love's Labor's Lost to number one when we finally are taking our mulligans, and when we do that as an episode, I think I am going to put it below Richard the Third and above Romeo and Juliet. So it's now at my wow top ten. Spot. Yeah, it's it's a top ten for me. Wow. Uh, tell me more, Will. Well, I think that, and again, this is one of those things where uh, you know the rankings may not be etched for all time. I think that your attitudes will change over time. But what I like about this one is. The thematic aspects, I think, are woven through in a really compelling way. You know, you and I, when we were sort of prepping for this episode and talked about how so much of it's about Coriolanus, but now as we've talked about these different characters, I actually think that there's a lot more going on in the secondary cast as well Mm -hmm. that's very psychologically interesting. I think that it's actually pretty well plotted, maybe not quite as well as some of the others. I think that in the last act or two, there could be a little bit more action and um, it it sort of is great for the first two thirds to three quarters. And then I think starts falling away a little bit, but I like the character. I think some of the language is incredible, especially Coriolanus's meltdown speech and some of the other dialogue around Coriolanus's rage. I think it just some of the best stuff Shakespeare's written. And yeah, I think Coriolanus speaks to our time. I mean, there's a reason that this play has been appropriated and used in political contexts over and over again because the issues that it brings up are ongoing and part of our society, and I think Shakespeare delivers them in a really compelling and interesting way. What about you, James? All right, wow. Well, I I do not share your... I'm not saying I don't like the play, but I do not share your august opinion of it here. So uh, my feeling overall in this one is, you know, like I get to the end and I found myself with a little bit of ambivalence in the final analysis of it. And I think basically I find Coriolanus to be a little bit one note as a character. Mm. And I feel like the plot is a little bit more straightforward than some of the other plays. And I agree with you that there's some more interesting things going on psychologically and thematically with the second tier characters. But at the end of the day, it doesn't have either the level of oppositionality of a Henry the Fourth one or a level of psychological depth that a play like Hamlet or Macbeth or Othello might have. And similarly, at the same time, it also doesn't entertain me in the way that some of the other top plays mm. entertain me, right? Like, I, I mean, I think Julius Caesar is kind of an obvious comp as being another play that's very invested in political questions. Mm-hmm. Julius Caesar is also just a great thriller, you know like it's got the oppositionality of different characters it's got the cut and thrust of politics but it's also just very entertaining right i I think so anyway that's a long way of saying like I i don't think that this play fully works i think there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about and i think we've hit a lot of those things i think there's a lot more we could have hit on if we'd kept going 
but I don't think that it quite all hangs together it, or, or maybe it's just as fully realized or powerful as some of these other plays. So long story short, as I'm looking at my list here, uh, frankly, it's going to be bottom half for me. Interesting. It's it's not going to be like deep down bottom tier, but like I'm, I'm sort of looking at Richard II as my cutoff point. Mm. What I find if I think about this play versus Richard II, I think Richard II is a more fully developed philosophical and thematic text. And so I think, uh, and then I look like Troilus and Cresta, Henry IV II. Ultimately, I don't think I like this play quite as much as Henry IV II. So mm-hmm. this one's going to fall in as my number 19 between Henry IV II and As You Like It. Yeah, see, that's that's interesting. So I agree with everything you said about the upper tier, and that's why it sort of falls below Richard III for me, below Henry IV Part One, Othello, Lear, Caesar... King Lear, I don't know. King Lear might drop when I do my reevaluation. Mm-hmm. It doesn't stick with me quite as much as I would have thought. But yeah, it's solidly below all of those things. Merchant of Venice, it's in that sort of Merchant of Venice, Romeo and Juliet, Henry the... Henry. Uh, well, actually, I've got Henry the Sixth Part Two relatively high up here, but that's just straight entertainment. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely in that Merchant of Venice, you know, Romeo and Juliet, like a, a very, very good play, arguably... A masterpiece, but maybe not quite top, top, top tier. tier yeah, and I, I think with Richard II, I, I also put it in that class. I actually think that they're about equally thematically developed, in my view. But I view this one as actually more entertaining than Richard II in some ways. Just Richard II, it's so it's it's beautifully done, but it's so wordy by comparison. And some in yeah, some I mean, we we talked about Richard II how it was sort of more of a philosophical text almost than a play, right? Um, And I I do think that holds. I I can see what you mean. I I guess I just, this is just, I think, a taste thing at the end of the day. I just don't find this play to be that entertaining. Mm. I I find it interesting more than entertaining, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Well, did you put it above or below Troilus and Cressida? Below. Below. Just slightly below. Oh, interesting. See, I find Troilus and Cressida to be like that in more extreme form. Like, I find that one to be just a didactic, pedantic screed. Mm -hmm. And this, I actually think that there's more more drama to it, honestly. But, you know, we can analyze why you're wrong about this one with some of your specific choices later, and we can pick apart all of those one by one. Stay and- tuned to our Bardflies listeners for the rankings reevaluation coming soon. In which we will try to systematically destroy each other's rank order preferences of Shakespeare's plays. Uh, I, I'm not going to try to destroy you, Will. I'm just going to show you why you're wrong. That's all. Yeah, okay. Will, and who would you name the MVP of this play? Well, we can't let crows peck at eagles, James. I'm going to nominate Coriolanus. Uh, You could choose some other people. Some other people have some great lines, but I think it's Coriolanus. I've got a dark horse for you, Will. I'm going with Menenius for this play. He is a a good fellow. A a secondary character. I think he's by far the most pragmatic character in the play. Mm Mm-hmm. I think he's the only character who articulates a remotely productive view of the state. And I, I, I guess I just enjoyed the character. What can I say? I'm going with Menenius. Menenius for Consul. Menenius for Consul, indeed. And Will, before we go, do you have a non-Shakespearean recommendation for our listeners? Yes, I do, James. So, recently, I have been watching Glow on Netflix, which I had completely missed and have gotten into. For those who do not know... Is this the wrestling show? Yes. It's actually kind of wonderful. I had heard people talking about it. I assumed I would probably like it just because professional wrestling is interesting and amusing and outsized personalities and all of that. Mark Maron is great in it as the sort of showrunner of Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. And it's a very amusing period piece of the 80s. It's a great instance of great female characters that would otherwise not be making it in Hollywood or not getting interesting roles or sort of weirdos and misfits really throwing themselves into this zany, based on real life wrestling uh, thing. And the soundtrack's great. The costumes are great. It's 38 minutes per episode, which is also nice. I think we've sort of gotten 
into this weird space of watching hour-long dramas on television and major hefty episodic shows. This is one where I'm committed to the characters and I've laughed out loud repeatedly. There's just some great moments in it. A lot of great physical comedy, a lot of great commentary, and just good performances that really get at aspects of show business, aspects of kind of gender and society, but it doesn't feel like homework. It's just entertaining and funny in and of itself. Cool. Give us the recommendation one more time. That would be Glow on Netflix. Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. And that's our show. Next time on Bard Flies, The Winter's Tale offers up more on Shakespeare's favorite themes of bromance and irrational jealousy. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>